Coach MJ on the Real Mission I Impossible show. Today, our next guest, Pandit Dasa is his name. He is today an author, but he was a former monk, if you can believe that. And we've got him on the show to find out what's that all about? What was it like being a monk? And what is his outlook for today? Pandit Dasa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Coach MJ. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're honored that you were able to uh, to, to take accept our invitation. And we'd just like to get right into it because I know your time is valuable. Uh, one of the things that you did is in your lifetime is you spent 10 years, is that right, as a monk? Well, it was actually 15 years uh, as a monk in New York City. Well, that's got to be the most unbelievable thing for us to imagine out here in civilian land. Uh, first of all, to know that there are monks who live in New York City and just to immerse yourself into that world for 15 years in one of the most materialistic countries on the planet Earth. Yeah, it was definitely quite an experience. And, you know, it's becoming a monk, it's never something I plan to do. I don't think anyone growing up, anyone who's ever spent any time in a monastery, I don't think they've ever planned to do that. It's not something that's part of people's plan. Maybe some part of people plan on joining the army or the armed forces, but never becoming a monk, right? So that's not something we plan on. And it wasn't anything I planned on either. It happened through a series of events in my life. There were a lot of them were ups and downs. And during the down is when we do a lot of thinking about our life. So, you know, one of those down moments were when my parents had a multi-million dollar jewelry business in Los Angeles. And when we lost everything, like when that whole thing collapsed and we went almost completely broke, that was my first time when I started. This was in the early 1990s. So that's when I first started really contemplating the meaning and purpose of life and how I wanted to live the rest of my life. That's fascinating. Incredible. I read somewhere that your family, as in response to those those traumatic business circumstances, uh, took advantage of an opportunity out in Eastern Europe. Is that right? Yeah. So it was the early 1990s. A lot of Eastern Europe was breaking away from the USSR. And Bulgaria was one of those countries. And for whatever reason, my dad decided through some business contacts, I don't know who asked him or told him or convinced him. So he's like, we're going to go out to Bulgaria and start a, you know, and start a business. And because they don't have much and he had expertise in importing things from India. So he went out there. We we packed up our bags, left LA behind for good. Uh, you, you moved also. Yeah, my mom, myself, and my dad, we all three of us moved out to post-communist Bulgaria. And we went from living in a six-bedroom house with a pool and a jacuzzi on the hills of Los Angeles to a one-bedroom apartment in post-communist Bulgaria where no one spoke English. I mean, it was just about 30 to 40 years behind in technology. Everything on TV was in local languages. So I was really in like the twilight zone. And I think uh, for those people who've never been out to some of those countries and understood what you've just said. There's nobody speaking English. So even the road signs, you can't read them. Uh, if you need help, you don't know who to call. There's not like a systematic 911 situation. And uh, when you go into a restaurant, particularly in Bulgaria, and ask them for something, if they have it, they'll shake their head no, like they don't have it. It's completely, <laughs> it turns upside yeah. down. Is that right? Yeah, everything. Going to a grocery store and you're not sure what something what something means, and you can't even have a conversation with the person behind the the, the cashier because they won't understand anything. And in those days, in the early 1990s, literally no one spoke the language. There was just like one in like 
5,000 or 10,000 that could speak some of the language and I could see that they wouldn't fully get it. So it was very difficult and challenging. And of course, there was no internet. So you can just imagine, I went from being a very busy person with a lot of friends and you know, doing all the things you do in LA to doing nothing at all. And, and so doing nothing can be a really good thing because we distract our mind so much with all the things that we want to do and think, believe that we have to do that when we can actually stop doing all of that stuff and give our mind that break, that moment of nothing and silence, that's when the powerful ideas and inspirations actually arise. So it was a good thing for me. So this is, this is what uh, meditation teachers like Deepak Chopra and others, perhaps even you talk about the goal of meditation is to find a place where you're thinking about nothingness. And from there, the still voice from, from inside gives us an opportunity to tap into the universe. Yeah. So, you know, the, the nothingness isn't the only aspect of meditation. It is one aspect of clearing our mind and allowing our mind to wander freely and exploring. It's almost like a child. When you give the child an area to explore and figure things out, then it learns, it, you know, it taps into its creativity to figure out what to do. So, one aspect is to clear the mind so that it can wander. The other aspect is it also helps us focus a little bit more, right? You can, like, I like to say that you close out the apps in the mind because we have so many apps up here that we need to close out. And, you know, closing an app here is easy. Closing the app up here is hard. So meditation also helps us close the apps up here so that we can, let's say you have a lot of different important tasks ahead of you, but you have all these random apps up here that are distracting you from that task. Meditation can help us close those out so that we can actually stay more focused on the task at hand. And this can be really helpful in the workplace or any place, right? So it's like you make most progress on a highway when there's no traffic or there's less traffic, right? So that's what we're trying to do. Meditation can help us declutter and reduce the traffic up here so we can actually make some progress. Bandit, that's an amazing uh, description of that activity. And, you know, we've heard about it. Uh, some of us have tried it. Uh, I know for sure that meditation can be a helpful tool once you can actually get that stillness that you need to do that. And when you, when you talked about some of the apps that we have to close as your metaphor, it made me think about our phones today. If we have a lot of apps open, uh, even if we're not using them, there's a constant stronger drain on our battery. And so possibly also with the mind? 100% with the mind. I mean, anything, any machine that gets overused, it's going to become drained. Anything it is, right? If you're driving your car really fast, it's going to empty out the gas tank faster. Whereas if you drive it on economy mode, so to speak, it'll take you a little further. So yeah, I mean, the mind can get overwhelmed. When we are when we have too much on our mind, then we get anxious, we get stressed. We're more likely to make mistakes at whatever we're doing. Or if somebody disagrees with us, we might be, we might jump, we may, you know, react in a negative way. So when our mind is not in that calm, somewhat calm space, we're likely to be much more reactive to things because we can't take anymore. And one little wrong comment or somebody looks at us the wrong way could make us, that could be the straw that broke the camel's back, right? So yes, 
the more we use it, the more drain we experience. And that's why we need to, throughout the day, let off steam through mindfulness and meditation. And then we can be a little bit more relaxed and calm in our mind. And that just allows us to do everything better and interact with others better as well. Do, do we need to go become a monk for 15 years in order to learn a way that we can tap into this powerful tool that you're talking about? Absolutely. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, you know, it is definitely an interesting experience, even if, you know, there's a lot of places you can live in a monastery for a day or three days or a week. And I, and I would say, hey, if you get a chance to do that, or even for the weekend, it would be a powerful eye-opening experience, right? Just something I, I different. It to would do, be, yeah, yeah. You know, or just a meditation retreat, a week-long meditation right. retreat. I know a lot of people do those. Those things can definitely help, and that's an experience you'll never forget. Just like I'm not a monk anymore, but I'm never going to forget those 15 years. It's like they're always up there. However, if you never have a chance to do that, whoever you are, whether you're at home taking care of your kids, whether you're at a very busy corporate job, whatever it is. You can do this at home, at work, anytime, wherever you want to, right? It's something very simple that can be done at by, by anyone, whoever you are. And all it does require, like anything else, to be able to do it well, it's some consistency, some determination to keep doing it. And it doesn't have to be really long stretches of time, right? A lot of times... People think, oh, it's got to be like half an hour. I've got to do 30 minutes every day. And I see a lot of teachers recommending that. And I realize that people aren't, because, you know, I speak in corporations all the time. And I used to recommend 10 to 15 minutes. And the next time I'd go there, I'd realize that no one's really doing that. And because they did it for a little while, for like a few days or a week, but it was overwhelming. 10 to 15 minutes doing something for 10 to 15 minutes that you've never done before. And you don't have any guidance and then you're not sure if you're doing it right or not. And then you get discouraged and you stop. So now what I'm doing is I'm just recommending people just to do it for a, one to two minutes, maybe a couple times a day. So just break it up. So if you want to do 10 minutes, why don't you break it up as to into a couple, you know, one to two minute segments, a few times a day, unless you can do 10 minutes straight, 15 minutes straight, go for it. No problem. But the thing is that we have this, a lot of us are, Type A personalities. We don't want to be a Type A meditator because <laughs> that won't work. Right. I want I to get it done, up. and I want to get yeah. it done now. Yeah, and that's not the way to approach it. Right. So you know, you can learn it. It's very simple. Basically, it just involves a few different types of breathing exercises, focusing exercises, just to get our mind in the present moment and in the, in the right space. I wonder. I'm just going to take a shot here, and you know, just go for a three pointer. Uh, could you walk us through, just kind of take us through a, a one minute opportunity to, to set this up on how we could just do our own meditation practice at home just to give it a shot? Yeah, sure. So we can start by closing our eyes. All right. Now, and... if you're driving, folks, hold on a second. You need to pull over the side of the road, put your blinkers <laughs> on. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So we start by closing our eyes and we then bring our mind to the present moment. And we can do this by feeling the weight of our feet pushing down into the floor. And now have our mind focused just on the weight of our feet pushing down into the floor. And this just helps us mind focus on one thing as opposed to the 10 things. And if we only have a minute, then go ahead and take five really deep breaths. And the breaths should be such that they fill up your lungs completely. 
Deep breath in, lungs fill up completely. And then when we exhale, exhaling thoroughly and completely emptying out the lungs. So four more times, deep breath in, again, fill up the lungs completely and exhale completely and thoroughly. So what this does, this helps us reduce our anxiety. It helps us calm down. It helps us get more better perspective on whatever the situation that we may be struggling with in the moment. And it can even help regulate our blood pressure. And then once we finish these five breaths, then we can take a moment to think of one thing that's happening right now, that's happened today that we're grateful for. Gratitude is an essential part of meditation. Think of something that makes us, that we're grateful for, because that helps us shift our mindset. If our mindset was thinking, oh, why isn't this happening to me? Why did that happen to me? Well, let's think about the positive that did happen. Take a moment of gratitude, take another deep breath in and slowly open your eyes. And that can be done in about a minute. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. We do need to be more mindful of how we're going through our life because sometimes we we get lost in the in the whole veracity of what we're doing and we we kind of forget that you know we are humans being and that we could get a lot more done if we'll just center be more mindful have gratitude and then reset and refocus yeah exactly you know so we we buy into this whole idea that we need to do a lot all the time and if we're not if we're not doing a lot all the time that there's something wrong with me i'm not doing i'm not doing the best that I can. And therefore we're trying to multitask, do three, four, five things at once. And, you know, there's even research showing that multitaskers actually end up just making more mistakes because our brain isn't programmed to multitask. It can only really do one task at a time. Um, so when we believe that we actually become less productive because we want to keep ourselves busy and to keep ourselves busy, we end up multitasking and then we never do one thing properly and thoroughly. And then we feel frustrated that we tried five things and we didn't get any one of them done. <laughs> right. Tell me now, today, when you are meeting with corporations, your clients, and of course, their teams and staff, um, what what is the what is the essential challenge today in today's workplace? Well, there are quite a few challenges. I think one of the biggest challenges um people are trying to figure out how to manage their work environment and whether that's going to be hybrid, if it's in the office, if it's at home. So this is a challenge companies are struggling with to some degree. Some have adopted and said, yep, we're just going to be, everybody can go remote. And some are saying, okay, hybrid, two days at home, three days at work. And some are pushing for people to come back. And those who are pushing are getting a lot of resistance. And so that's one of the struggles companies are facing is how to find that balance. And I think a lot of people have become very comfortable working from home. And it's also showing that they're getting as much done as they would as if they were at work. Now, companies are concerned that by being at home, they're not developing the positive relationships with each other that they would normally and sure, that is a concern because having those positive relationships really helps projects move forward faster because you, there's greater trust. However, 
that trust can still be established. If there's a culture where we are checking in on each other and talking to each other once in a while, even virtually, those relationships still can, can still be built, right? Like people have relatives in other parts of the world. You still you talk with them and you connect with them and now you know what's happening in their life. So that can still be done. So that's one of the bigger challenges happening now where some companies have taken a firm stance and everyone back in the office. Some are saying, okay, partially. And some are saying, okay, you can stay home. So that is some of the challenges. One of the challenges, of course, since the whole pandemic thing happened, those who are working from home, it was really hard to figure out what the boundary was. When does work start and when does it stop? Because I'm you're working from your dining table or wherever it is. You know, and then the, people were working longer than normal. And there was almost a little bit more burnout simply because they were working from home and now everyone's home, but that's sort of ending now. So that problem isn't as strong as it was when the pandemic first started. Yes, I, I totally agree. And most people will remember what it was like. Um, and then you're you're busy, you're on your computer. If you did live with a with someone else or your family, somebody would just walk through with their agenda, not thinking about you at all. And you had this kind of dynamic and daddy helped me with my homework. Now I got a problem and you're in a virtual call. Yeah, it was it was quite a thing, but we're learning now how to deal with it. And companies who who have successfully managed to 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 learn that there is a possibility to have this human connection in the virtual world and that there is a possibility and there are consultants like you and and myself and others who are helping companies through their leadership models connect better with their virtual teams um virtual is a very powerful uh tool for a business to to deploy if it's done right yeah, and I think one of the key things is about connection, making people feel that there is a sense of belonging at work, right? And that can be done whether you're virtually or in person. And I think leaders play a huge role in making people feel that they belong. Like everybody, that's what everybody's looking for deep down, a sense of belonging. And if we're going to spend more than half of our waking time at work, right, and which we do, half of our waking time is at work. Don't we want to be working in an environment where we feel valued, appreciated, and like we belong, like we matter? We absolutely do. And the, the, the leaders and management teams that create that type of a workplace culture <clears throat> will notice the greatest level of employee loyalty and retention and probably the lowest level of attrition. So I think that is one thing is that, and that really is because a lot of times, leaders are just focused on productivity and not so much on the needs of the individual. And I think that's where the disconnect is because we can't just expect people to be working like robots and machines, right? We have mental health needs. We have emotional health needs. We have physical health needs. We have families. We just have to realize that people need time and space to take care of those things. And if those things are taken care of, people will be more peaceful and happy and that peace and happiness will translate into the workplace that will impact their productivity and the quality of work that they do because they're peaceful and happy here that will show up here as well and i think that's something leadership and management i think they're trying to understand that i think that's the understanding we really need to create that sense of belonging like hey you matter and we care for you and your whole self 
and not just the productivity you bring into the organization. Yeah, the uh, leadership has come a long way from the days of who parked in my parking space and shouting across the the office and putting everyone in the terror point to appreciating what Mary did yesterday uh, for her team and giving them praise and recognition and appreciation. And like you said, uh, if you're a company and a leader out there and, and you're listening to this podcast or watching the show, if people are spending more than half of their waking time in your business and, and you don't treat them as a family member and you don't see them as an asset as if you would your own finger, then you really need to do a, a, a checkup from the neck up, as Zig Ziglar used to say, because <laughs> people will walk out your door just as fast as they came in. It's all about how we feel. We want to feel significant as people. We want to feel like they're making a contribution. We want to feel like somebody cares. Yes, there has to be stewardship in, in leadership. Totally get that. But at the end of the day, we're a human family. Yeah, absolutely. And the more people feel that they're valued and their work is appreciated and noted and they're treated like a human being, the more, you know, people don't really, really want to pick up and leave. It's it's too hard to, to leave a job and then to find another one. And it's really hard for court organizations to keep constantly hiring new people. It's so expensive and it's just demoralizing for everyone else because they realize if this person left, I wonder who's next. So nobody wants to deal with that, but really it is up to the leadership to realize that, hey, we have to change our ways. And for those leaders who are self-aware and thoughtful and who want to make a change, they realize that change has to start with themselves and their own attitude. Because a lot of times what can happen is it's the right politically correct thing to say that, yeah, we believe in work-life balance. We want you to make sure you're getting a good amount of work-life balance, right? It's great to say that, those words coming out of leaders' mouths. And then they still send emails at two in the morning, at three in the morning, right? So you say that you work-life balance is important in your organization, and then you're sending emails at two in the morning. That does not demonstrate the words that you just said. There's a real conflict. There's a real contradiction in the words and the actions. And so that's one thing I always tell I tell leaders when I speak to them, like, hey, this is something that really can't do this anymore because you're putting so much pressure on them to think. Now they're thinking they were supposed to have responded at two in the morning. And even if you're the kind of leader that needs to send that email, why don't you just schedule it to go out at 8 a.m.? Just schedule the thing. It's, it's an easy technological thing that we can do. It doesn't require rocket science. So this way, no one's feeling guilty. No one's feeling like their job's at risk now because they didn't respond till 8 a.m. when they were supposed to respond. So, you know, I think our words and our actions have to be consistent, especially those for those in a leadership role for everyone, but especially for them. Yes. And of course, today you bring mindfulness as a theme into organizations. Uh, you've talked about how important meditation is. You've talked about gratitude, but you're also now talking about the feelings of people within organization must not just be cared for, must be nurtured, appreciated and protected. Yeah, we're human beings. So we have feelings, right? And those have feelings have to be addressed. A human being. Okay, well, I'll just ask a question. Whenever we've done a lot of work, put a lot of effort into a project, and we haven't heard any appreciation, how demoralizing is that? Whenever I'm speaking to a live audience or even virtual, and I ask them this question, I'm like, how do you feel when you're not appreciated? Oh my gosh, you should see the responses that come back because it struck a nerve. 
right? Because we've all been in that situation where we did a lot, didn't get any appreciation. And people say that, yeah, you feel discouraged, uninspired, unheard, unmotivated, this, you know, and like, I don't want to put that much effort into the next project. So these are all things that hurt feelings, right? Neglecting someone's work and contributions is very hurtful. It's, it's not just hurtful when somebody says something hurtful. It can be equally, if not more hurtful, when we're just neglected and indifferent towards the contributions of others. And so it's really devaluing them and demoralizing. And that is one reason, one of the reasons why this phenomenon of quiet quitting is taking place, where people are checking out doing the bare minimum because they're going to get paid. Not That's not the only reason that's happening. Some people just may not want to work too much. But if, one reason is when people are not encouraged and inspired and appreciated, they're going to be checking out. They're going to do the bare minimum and get their paycheck and be out of there. Yes. Yes, 100%. And of course, organizations who ignore this advice, uh, then they become the number one recruiters for their competition because all they're simply doing, you know, they're bringing their agenda to work saying, you know, I'm the leader, I'm the boss. And Oh, by the way, I never got much recognition or appreciation when I was a kid. There's no reason for me to dole any out. You don't know how tough life is. Well, guess what? They're going to be lonely, lonely, lonely leaders. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And nobody, and that's, that's at the miserable position to be in. And the, also what's happening is they may be setting the tone for the next person to be the leader who's going to do what they did. Yes. And, and that cycle continues on and on and on. And so until you get a thoughtful and mindful leader who wants to break that cycle, which happens. Yes. We're talking to Pandit Dasa. He's an author. He uh, speaks about mindfulness and other ways to uh, empower corporations and their staff and team. We'll give you all the links on how to reach out to him. And we thank you very much for the free meditation class you've added into this episode today. That was awesome. And we send you blessings uh, from the Real Mission Impossible show. Thank you so much, Coach MJ. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I loved having this conversation with you. Right.